Well, if you would, let's look at a different kind of song, the Psalms, and turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm 6. And we are making our way through some of these uh, early Psalms as we conclude the year. And then we'll start a, a new series in the new year. We'll do a few Christmas related messages uh, at the end of December. But we're looking at some of these early Psalms, uh, mostly all Davidic Psalms. And we come this morning to Psalm 6. So follow along with me as I read the text for us to orient us to our study. Psalm chapter 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon was arguably one of the greatest preachers in the English language. Uh, he pastored a Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, Church in London, England um, in the 1800s. And he uh, was a very young preacher to start. Uh, he pastored, at the time, the largest church in the world. Uh, in fact, they gave out tickets uh, to get into church because it would fit, get filled uh, so quickly. Uh, yet Spurgeon, uh, even very vocally, speaks about uh, the struggles that he had very candidly, one of which was depression. Uh, he had off and on battles with spiritual depression. Uh, certainly there were numerous reasons for this, uh, but uh, many of his biographers and even he himself spoke of one incident in his life that, that just exacerbated his uh, struggles in this way. One evening when Spurgeon was preaching at the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall, uh, he uh, was preaching there to a group of over 10,000 people. And there were others outside trying to get in. And uh, some, some men who were in the congregation hearing him preach uh, decided to play a, a prank and they yelled out fire when there wasn't any fire. 
uh, during Spurgeon's sermon, which led to a stampede in that section of the Surrey Gardens to escape, uh, fleeing for their lives. And it led to the death of seven people, and about 30 people were severely injured. Spurgeon was beside himself. He, uh, many thought he would never preach again. In fact, even uh, later in life, he, he would speak about the text that he was preaching on that night, and he could hardly read the text anymore. He could, that scripture for him was clouded by that event uh, for so many years. Uh, he, he was so deeply distressed about this. And, and it, would con- it would bring back, the memory of it would, would cause him great spiritual depression. Not only that, though, later in his ministry, other events would, would bring on great discouragement for him, such as what's called the downgrade controversy. He was part of the Baptist Union, and as he noticed, different fundamental Christian doctrines being neglected or rejected, and Spurgeon was trying to hold the line, uh, as he brought up his concerns, he wasn't really being heard, and so he ended up resigning from the Baptist Union. One of the most famous, greatest preachers, and he resigns from this, and it was, uh, many people were against him in that. And yet, that caused him great discouragement as well. Uh, Many other factors that you can read about. Others have written about Spurgeon's uh, uh, struggle in this way. I just uh, was looking at a book this week in preparation for this sermon, because David, of course, is speaking about his discouragement and depression at a season in his life. And there's a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine, and he's just trying to draw from Spurgeon's teaching on the subject. And Spurgeon became a very... Uh, sympathetic hearer of others in this very situation because of his personal struggles uh, with uh, discouragement and depression. Uh, In fact, he, in in his first pastorate in New Park Street, he met uh, his soon-to-be wife, uh, Susanna Thompson, and she had, she had, uh, she believes trusted in Christ, but was kind of fearful to, to put that out into the open and she began to talk to Spurgeon and he was very young at the time and he found great encouragement from Pilgrim's Progress and so he encouraged her to read Pilgrim's Progress and, and that helped her along and until eventually she professed faith in Christ and he was able to baptize her and they were later, later married. Um, but Spurgeon said that his uh, favorite book other than the Bible was Pilgrim's Progress and no doubt because one struggling for many reasons he liked it but you have Christian in that book. It's an allegory uh, that's written about a man named Christian who's headed to the celestial city. It's an allegory about the Christian's journey to to heaven. And uh, and yet along his way, Christian faces various challenges like the slew of despond or doubting castle or giant despair. These different places and characters and Spurgeon no doubt to great comfort in that. You know, Spurgeon himself speaking about his struggles with discouragement and depression was a great help to others who found themselves in that very situation. John Bunyan speaking about it in picturesque ways in the Pilgrim's Progress also was a great benefit for those facing those very same challenges. Uh, And David as well becomes another example for us of one speaking very candidly about spiritual discouragement and depression and yet how he dealt with it. And so it is a great help for us to find other saints who have struggled in a similar way to things that we are finding ourselves struggling with. 
And, and so this psalm becomes a great uh, benefit for us as we see David sorrowing in a great way. And we don't know all the circumstances around his sorrowing, but maybe that even makes it better for us to be able to see it relate to our situation uh, since David doesn't define very specifically the circumstances of his discouragement in this psalm. This is a, a prayer of David to the Lord in a time of great agitation, agony, uh, discouragement. It is a desperate prayer. What you may have noticed about it, though, is that if you were here last time and we talked about, you know, a pattern for prayer and... Uh, I've had more than one person come up to me and, man, I've just been thinking about my prayers more critically and, th- and uh, that's good. You know, I don't want to discourage you. But, but here, it's almost like David breaks the pattern. And so, you, okay, so David gives a, a pattern for prayer in the normal scene of life, but he's not so rigid that he wouldn't pray like Psalm 6. In Psalm 6, he just cries out to the Lord. He doesn't uh, spend time, you know, carefully thinking about God's attributes and everything and then working to, you know, confess sin and, and then thanksgiving and then supplication. He just goes right into it and he's just pouring out his heart to the Lord. And there's a time for that as well. So don't hear me wrong from last week, you know, uh, that you, you have to write out a term paper of your prayer and then recite that to God. No, no, no. This is a good example that there are different seasons of life and, and God hears all of those. This is like the uh, break glass in case of emergency kind of prayer. <laughs> it's like, you know, just, just start praying and just go to the Lord. And that's what David does here. This psalm has been classified. Uh, and I mean classified. There's a number of different kinds of psalms. And you can kind of get that praise psalms, psalms of confession, psalms of lament. And pe- people have ca- categorized these in- into those classes. And many have categorized this as a penitential psalm. That meaning a, a psalm of confession of some sin. The challenge is, though, that David doesn't name any sin in this. The reason we get that classification is because he says, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. So that idea of rebuke and discipline are parallel. And, so, uh, and then he refers to God's anger and wrath. So the assumption is David is concerned that in some sin in his life is bringing upon him the discipline of the Lord. And he's asking God to mitigate that to some degree in his life. That's why this is classified in that way. Others actually go, well, there's no sin that's mentioned, so we shouldn't classify it that way. And yet, still, they would say it's a personal lament psalm. Now, I think either way, I do think it's still most likely David has something in his mind. Whether that is in reality true or not, David is concerned, I think, of some sin. And yet, there are other things beyond that that are bothering him as well. His enemies, his lack of uh, closeness with the Lord, uh, and even just some physical ailments that seem to be the case as well. So there's a host of things that are discouraging David in this psalm. It is certainly not true that any time we are suffering or discouraged, it's the result of sin. It can be the result, but it's not always the case uh, that the personal sin is the reason for our struggle. Um, And yet David seems to be concerned in some way there about sin in his life, is my conviction. I, I think that you can connect Psalms Uh, three to six uh, with the first description of the historical context in Psalm three. Uh, Not everyone sees it that way, but it seems to make sense to me that David introduces the historical context of Absalom and then these other Psalms are really in in that historical context as he's uh, wrestling through that time. 
And so David laments here. He's in a time of great challenge. And yet one other introductory note is you have this instruction for the choir master. This is to be sung, and it's to be accompanied by an instrument. And this interesting word, sheminith, there's a great debate about what it means. It kind of has the idea of something related to eight. So it's an eight-string instrument. Is it the eighth string? Is it an octave? Is it, you know, whatever, a place name that sounds like eight? You know, all these things. It's most likely a stringed instrument. And so, but here's the takeaway. This individual lament of David became a worship song. It became a song for the people of God. And that's very instructive for us that God gave us this song, this prayer of David for the people in the Old Testament and then now, now for us to recite back and to have words to express our hearts at seasons of great discouragement as well. And so the Lord knew that we, we would need such a song. What, one other thing I like about these lament psalms is that they're very short often. I think that's instructive for us about those who are in lament, those who are suffering greatly. There is not a big attention span when you are suffering greatly. You just need little bits. Uh, you know, it, it's hard in the time of suffering to read some big tome. You need just these little bits to come. It's like when you're, when you're really sick physically, uh, you just can't eat a big meal, right? You get some ice chips, you get a little cracker, but you don't eat too much lest your stomach can't take it and, and you have to throw up, right? You have a very sensitive stomach. And it's like that with lament psalms. They're just a little bit. It's like a little cracker, a little something to eat on and, and to nourish us back to health. And that's what we have here. Ten verses, and they, they show us uh, David's progression here in his discouragement, and yet he ends with great confidence at the end. So let's look at this psalm of lament that David gives here and see how it may benefit us as well. First, let's consider his desperate request. His desperate request, verses 1 to 3. We see this weariness in, in David that prompts his prayers. Look then again at verses 1 to 3. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in, in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Yahweh, how long? What is it that concerns David? What makes his request so desperate? Well, first, we might imply that his sin... In verse 1, he says, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Notice some parallelism here. Anger and wrath go together. Rebuke and discipline go together. He is uh, seeing the discipline of the Lord in his life, and he wants God to mitigate it in some way. We don't know what particular issue is bothering him, but nevertheless, he senses the Lord's hand of discipline and wants it to be lessened. We fear the prospect of discipline, the consequences of sin. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever shaken over the prospect of being disciplined for your sin or facing the consequence of your sin. Oh Lord, please don't let it be as bad as it, as it could be, as it should be. Oh Lord, please mitigate, show grace, show, show mercy. I know I deserve chastisement, but God, go easy on me. <laughs> David considers this discipline of the Lord. And, and listen to, this would have been certainly in David's mind and theology in 2 Samuel 7 when he's given the covenant that God makes to him. Listen to verses 14 to 15. 2 Samuel 7, 14 to 15. God says, I will be 
to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So here's this father-son relationship that God is going to have with David and, and with the Davidic kings. And he's going to discipline them when they sin. Not only that, but David's son Solomon, uh, who had very much relation to the Davidic heaven as well, he writes in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, and so he's writing to his son Rehoboam, do not, discipline Yah- do not despise Yahweh's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For Yahweh reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so, reminding of the discipline of the Lord. And then, of course, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, picks up that very quote and develops it a little further in Hebrews chapter 12. And he quotes that verse in Proverbs in verses 5 and 6. And then in verse 7, he writes, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Remember, that goes back to the idea in 2 Samuel 7. God is father, us as his children. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in, what, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. (laughs) If the author of Hebrews, earthly fathers, they, they disciplined us as it seemed best to them right? There's a sense in which uh, the earthly father who loves their child seeks to discipline them, to instruct them in the right way, and yet they still do it imperfectly. And yet, how much more does God care for us and do it perfectly in his discipline? Who better to entrust ourselves to in discipline as, than, than God the Father? Though discipline may be scary for us, to have it from the hand of God we can always be encouraged we're in good hands. And so David is, is concerned. He's, he's distressed. He's in agony about this rebuke and this discipline. And that's one reason for his desperation. Another is sickness, potential sickness. Verse 2 says, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. And some go back and forth as to, is he talking about a spiritual concern here or a physical? And I kind of lean towards something physical is going on here. In fact, it seems similar to the way that David connects in Psalm 32, his sin, and then the way that that affected him physically. He, he describes himself here in Psalm 6 as languishing, pining away. His bones are troubled. He, he's in physical distress. And bones here uh, really just refer to the whole person, his whole being. This word for troubled is an intense one. It's used in Psalm 2, verse 5, of the nations being terrified. It's used in Genesis 45, verse 3, of Joseph's brothers being terrified when they realized that it was Joseph. It's used in Judges 20, verse 41, of the Benjamites who were terrified at the prospect of what was going to come upon them. 
One writer says it, it has the idea of terrified out of one's senses. It describes not just the agonizing pain of illness and disease, but the suffering fear that can attend deteriorating life force and loss of control. So David is greatly disturbed here. And so he asks for grace and for healing, pleading for grace, God's unmerited favor. He, he deserves God's wrath, but he asks that God would deal with him according to his steadfast love instead. Ron Ryder said, David acknowledges that he deserves chastening, but desires grace. And then another reason for his desperation is found in verse 3. All related to this, we might call it sadness. Sadness. Verse 3 says, my soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Yahweh, how long? My, my soul, once again, most likely refers to his whole being. All of the, who he is, is, is greatly troubled burdened in his whole person. You'll see more of this in verses 6 to 7 as he describes his tears, his pain, in, in that way. There is a discouragement in David, a depression, a sadness of soul that lingers in his life. Spurgeon said that soul trouble is the very soul of trouble. He, he's so distressed he doesn't even complete his sentence. Verse 3 ends kind of broken in Hebrew. It's, it's just, he, he can't even complete a sentence. But you, oh, oh Yahweh, how long? It just trails off. William Plummer said, great grief is apt to utter broken sentences. That's where David is. He, he just can't even finish what he's saying. He looks at the calendar and, and just wonders, Lord, how long is this going to go on? How long am I going to be in this condition for? He wants relief. And isn't that the case for us as well? It's the calendar that bothers us. Oh, Lord, if I knew it was going to end on this date. Oh, but I don't know. I don't know when it's going to end. When is it going to let up? This is a frequent uh, feature of lament psalms. This statement, how long, O oh Lord? The Old Testament saints waiting. How long, Lord? I mean, think about the life of Abraham. I mean, that's the subtitle of his life. How long, Lord? He's just waiting, 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 waiting. The Old Testament saints waiting for Messiah. How long, how long? Then even in the New Testament, you read Revelation 6. Lord, how long until you bring judgment on the earth and you reign righteously? This is the cry of the believer. How long? Personally, we ask this in our own personal trials. Cosmically, we ask this. Lord, how long until you establish justice on the earth? Now, this isn't a, a prophecy of Jesus. Nevertheless, it found its way into Jesus' vocabulary in John 12, 27, when he said, my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Spare me from this hour? Save me from this hour? No, it's for this purpose that he came to this hour. Jesus said the prospect of bearing sin was troubled greatly. So he terrified in that way. And so he, call, he, he calls on David's use. Of course, other places speak in the same, same way as Psalm 6 of this great trouble. Uh, for the Lord, of course, facing the prospect of God's wrath and anger, not for his own sin, but for the sins of those who believe, is a terrifying prospect. I mean, we, think of the, we often talk about the, the, the horror of the physical aspects of crucifixion, but far worse, the Lord is concerned about, because others have died on crosses, uh, others have been tortured greatly physically, and yet Christ is so concerned about bearing the anger and wrath of God for eternities of, <laughs> of wrath, uh, for 
He is the only infinite person who can bear the infinite punishment that sin deserves because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God. And that is what he bears on the cross. His soul is greatly troubled at that prospect. But coming back to David, what is it that David, David is, is troubled about? Well, I mean, disfavor of God, sickness, threats from enemies later in the psalm. I mean, probably all of the above. I don't think you have to choose. So this psalm becomes helpful for us because it's like, all right, plug in your, your struggle here. Is it over sin? David's got that. Is it, is it some physical sickness? David's also got that. Is it fear of, of others and enemies? That's, that, that's here too. Is it you feel, feel as close to the Lord as you once were? Also here. I mean, it's like uh, fill in the blank. I mean, he, there is so much here that David is concerned about that speaks to us as well. I think the greatest, most likely, is David's concern over his absence of the Lord in verse 4 that he gets to, Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Yet look at what David is doing. He is seeking the God who disciplines him and seems distant from him. Four times in these three verses, he calls on the name, the covenant name of God, Lord or Yahweh. He says it four times. I mean, that's, that's excessive for three verses. And yet he's calling on this covenant God in his time. One, one writer just brought to mind the, the, the reality of how when it, at times when, when a consistent uh, father is lovingly disciplining his children, uh, his young children over their sin, there may be a, a, a time of discipline. And then even minutes later at times, and I've had this experience where the child comes back, jumps in your lap. I love you, daddy. And it's like, wow, we just had a moment of discipline and yet here they come right back to me affirming love because that, that's the nature of it. That's a small picture of that. And that's what David is doing here. God is his heavenly father disciplining him and yet here he comes right back to the Lord. Oh Lord, I need you. Psalm 119, 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So this is David's condition as he begins. His desperate request. His desperate request. This is what prompts his prayers. He is weary. This then leads to the middle section here, which has two stanzas, uh, verses uh, 4 and 5 and then 6 and 7, but we'll, we'll uh, look at them together, and we'll call this deliberate reasoning. Deliberate reasoning. Here we have David giving his arguments uh, these are what ground his prayers. He, he's going to continue to pour out his petition to the Lord, but he's going to give specific reasons why God should ask. I, I, would, I would suggest to you, this is a good way to pray, to use sanctified logic in your prayer to say, God, you should answer my prayer because of this, because of this, because of this, right? And the way David reasons is really good. Uh, there's a sense of, this is an emotional prayer, but it's, it's also a logical prayer. He, he doesn't, just divorce himself from logic, but he's also not stoic. He's very emotional, agonizing, and yet he's very logical. And he, he gives these three reasons, these three grounds for why God should hear him. The first reason, reason one, verse four, God's covenant love. He says, my, uh, verse four, turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So return, it could also be return, is the idea, he wants God to change his way towards him. David feels distant from God and desires deliverance. I mean, this may be the most acute p 
pain for a believer to feel distant from God. There may be physical things, there may be relational things with others, but if there is a distance felt from God, that is maybe the greatest pain because all those other things could be endured if God was near and present and felt. And yet it seems that David desires this return of God that would evidence itself in him delivering his life, delivering him in this present situation. And so he calls upon God and God's unchanging character, his covenant love to act to bring him back to a sense of God's felt presence. There's a great statement in uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 18, on assurance of grace and salvation. In paragraph 4, it says this, talking about assurance and God's felt presence. It says, quote, True believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. It may happen through some unexpected or forceful temptation. Or, and this is what I'm really getting at, or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. That seems to be what David is experiencing here. Yet, it goes on, yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ, and the brethren, sincerity of heart, or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. In the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. David just longs to have this sense of God's presence again. So he asks God, return, return. There's a, Joel Beakey tells a story. He's got a great book on assurance. Actually, he's written a few books on assurance, but he talks about one pastor who, at the end of his life, just a very strange uh, circumstance that he had an opportunity, or I don't think it was Beakey, it was someone else ministering to him, but he tells the story. And this minister, just for faithful guy, for whatever reason, at the end of his life, just lost all assurance. <laughs> and he's on his deathbed. And, and so someone's coming to, trying to come to encourage him and to no avail. And so until someone eventually comes and, and uh, they say, well, you know, don't you, I mean, what, trying to tr- ask him questions about, you know, his, his love for the Lord. And, and so he says, well, you know, what about uh, the, the people of God? Uh, you know, could you give up being with the people of God? Could you, could you never attend church again? He says, oh no, I could never do that. I, I love the people of God. And he said, there you go. That's the evidence. God is at work in your life. Because the, the new birth results in a love for the brethren, a love for the people of God. And, and all of a sudden it flooded back. All this assurance flooded back into his heart. Yes, God is at work. And, and Beaky says, you know, the Puritans are so careful in that they would say, if you have one evidence of God's regenerating work in your life, then you have them all, even if you can't perceive all of them in the moment. So it's like a string of pearls. And it's like if you can grab onto one and shake it, all the others will move. And so this guy, it's just, he, he couldn't see. He was in this darkness and, and he, he was given one thing that, that the Lord did remind him of that, oh yes, it is true that I love the people of God. It reminds me of, a, I think it was Spurgeon who, we're getting, we're, I know I'm on a tangent, that's just so, that's okay. If you don't know, it's bad, but we know we're on a tangent, just to encourage your hearts on assurance. Um, 
Spurgeon tells a story once of, of someone who he was trying to minister to, and they were like, no, I'm, I'm lost, I'm apostate. And he says, um, well, okay, then why don't you curse God? Why don't you never come to church again and, uh, and deny God right now? And they said, well, I could never deny God. And I, I love to be with the people of God. I love to, to, to gather with the saints. And he says, what are you talking about then? You know, trying to just convince them. Wait, you just told me that you, you think you're totally lost, but you could not deny God because you love God and you couldn't stop meeting with the people of God because you love the people of God. That's the evidence of a believer, dear Christian. And, and so trying to shepherd them and uh, back into uh, a right understanding. But there is dis- depression, discouragement that can cloud out those very realities in our hearts. And, it, and it's a dark night for the soul if that comes. And so what, da- what does David do? Coming back to Psalm 6, he, he wants God to return. And so what does he say? God, your steadfast love, for the sake of your steadfast love, turn, deliver my life, save me. He knows God has made a covenant. God will keep that covenant. He will show his love. And so he appeals to that. He appeals to the unchanging character of God and his covenant love. Second, he gives another reason. God's concern for his glory. God's concern for his glory in verse 5. It says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? More parallelism here. Uh, death and Sheol, remembrance and praise. This idea of remembrance is very much parallel with praise. It's not just mental recollection. It's, it's really a recounting of God's deeds, a telling forth of God's deeds in an act of worship. Here's what's going on. David desires to keep praising God. He, he desires to praise God in the land of the living with the people of God. That's what he wants. And, and he's saying, God, I can't do that if I'm six feet under. You, you have to save me here. You have to deliver me. What does he mean in Sheol? Who will give you praise? I believe that the best understanding of Sheol is used in a couple ways. It is, it's sometimes in the Old Testament used of the grave, just to say that someone has, has gone to the grave, they've died. Other times I think it, it can refer to unbelievers who've, where they've gone after death. I think David here is just speaking about this idea, if I, if I die, is really the idea. If I die, there's no opportunity to praise you. Or he's speaking actually more remotely. In Sheol, who will give you praise? When, when someone dies, I mean, you walk through a graveyard and you're not hearing hymns unless there are living people there. There's a quietness there. One writer said, churchyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. And David, of course, had a hope of resurrection and the afterlife. I mean, read Psalm 1610. He explicitly predicts the resurrection of the Messiah, one of his descendants, and his hope in that figure for his own resurrection. Others believe that as well. Daniel 12, hope of resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19. So the Old Testament saints, of course, had a doctrine of uh, things after death and of resurrection. Job hoped for resurrection. Uh, And yet here he's just saying, God, who's going to praise you when they're dead? But what's really instructive here for us that can easily be missed is what David is assuming in all this. Like your assumptions say a lot about you. They, they reveal what's really undergirding everything. They're like the unquestioned presuppositions that really have to be pressed to, to see what those actually are. 
what David is assuming here is that the purpose of his life is to praise God. <laughs> if he's saying, God, I can't praise you if I'm dead, the assumption is I am meant to live for your praise. That is why I'm here. I mean, how clarifying suffering can become for God's people on the purposes of life. Why do you want to go on living? David would say, I have to glorify God among people. I want to live to praise God. Is your answer to that question, I want to go on living because, is it because you want to continue to glorify God, to praise God among other people? Are you praising God among other people? This is a way to plead for your life before God. This is the way to do it. Not, I mean, it's okay to pray for other things as well. Say, God, I really would love to see this. I would really love to see that. But David just goes to the, the jugular vein. <laughs> he just says, God, if I die, who's going to praise you? He knows God loves his glory, and God loves to be praised and magnified among the world. And so he says, God, if you spare my life, I can still praise you. I can still give you glory. David didn't have the Westminster Confession of Faith, but he certainly has the spirit of it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is life for? Why are you here? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul says. Have you ever discovered after a while of using a tool, you were using it wrong? <laughs> Sometimes you're just in a, in, a, in a bind and you're like, don't have anything else. So you're like, I guess I have to use this, you know, whatever, as a hammer, it's not going to work. And you break the thing. And it's like, ah, but you didn't have anything else. Well, once you realize that you've been using the wrong tool, oh yeah, okay. Of course that's why it didn't work as well. There are so many people who are using their lives like that. They are designed in a particular way by God to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And yet they're going, you know what? I'm not going to use the tool that way. I'm going to use it this way. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who was called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God, Paul says. This is what we are to live for. Darrell Davis has a great statement here. <laughs> And uh, we'll contextualize it for our purposes. But he says this about this section. This agonized prayer then tells you that your whole reason for existence is not to make a living, not to become the most outstanding servant of Christ possible, not to get a superb education, not to advance rapidly in your profession, not to excel in the sport of your choice, but to praise God. David's prayer in verse 5 may expose you. How you answer the question, what's wrong with death, will do it. The only correct answer is, because then I wouldn't be able to stand at the padded pew at Woodlawn Presbyterian, or wherever else, he's writing in his context, Emmanuel Bible Church, and join my voice in singing, I greet thee, who my sure redeemer art, my only trust and savior, or, or my heart, because that is my whole reason for existence. Like, God, don't let me die because I want to sing praise God from whom all blessings flow next Sunday <laughs> to you and to your people. And that's what David is saying here. God, please, please act. I want to continue to glorify you as you've designed me to. So this is his calling on God to answer because of God's concern for his glory, because of God's covenant love, and then third, for God's compassionate pity. 
for, because of God's compassionate pity in verses 6 and 7. Here's his reasoning. He says in verse 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David here finally appeals based upon God's compassion for him in his crying. He uses a number of figures of speech to how, show how extreme the nature of his sadness is. And of course, he's being over the top here. He describes his tears as really floating his bed. I mean, he's like, I've cried so much. The water level is rising in my room. My bed is floating. I like to say David has a water bed, you know, uh, at this point because there's so much tears. And then his couch is flooded with tears or the NASB says he dissolves his couch with tears. It made me think of, uh, you know, like, we don't really have this. Like our sugar is just like in a spoon. You just put it in your, in your tea or your uh, coffee and you stir it up. But like in all the British shows, they always have like this, the cube, the little cube of sugar. And it's like fancy. And I always love those. And, and because like then you put the cube in, it just dissolves, right? That's like the idea David is saying about his couch. He's like, I'm on my couch and I'm, I'm crying so much. It's like that, that piece of sugar. It's just dissolving under uh, my tears. That's how intense this is. His eyes are wasting away in his grief. It, it grow, goes weak or it grows old as a result of his foes. We might picture the red puffy eyes from much crying. Zach Eswine says, In this fallen world, sadness is an act of sanity. Our tears a testimony of the sane. This is all taking place at night in David's imagery because he lies awake weeping on his bed. Commentator Craigie said, For most sufferers, it is in the long watches of the night when silence and loneliness increase and the warmth of human companionship is absent that pain and grief reach their darkest point. He's in deep distress here, extreme anguish. Derek Kidner says, Depression and exhaustion as complete as this are beyond self-help or good advice. Even prayer has died away. The foes who would normally have roused David only crush his spirit now. If anything is to save him, it will owe nothing to his own efforts. Such is the extremity which God is about to transform. He's weary of his condition, cannot see a way out. Sometimes Christians get into a place like this. They're too tired to get out of bed to get dressed, to take the kids to school, to go to work, to clean the house, to go to church, to read the Bible, to sluggish to pray. David is just overcome with grief. Now why does he include this part in his prayer? To God. Well, once again, he assumes something about the nature of God. He assumes that if God sees his tears he'll have compassion. He'll have pity upon him. I mean, most humans would be moved to such pity. And so would not God, how much more God who is the fullness of being? I mean, here's the reality. God is so compassionate, he could not be made to care more. The logic of David's prayer is that if God sees David's pain, then he will show pity. If God sees David's anguish, then he will show affection. If God sees David's sorrow, then he will show salvation. If God sees David's misery, then he will show mercy. There's an interesting verse in Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. It's, a, it's the law for 
uh, how to treat the poor in your country in, in Israel. And it says this, if, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, so in other words, you know, someone who's so poor, in order to give collateral, they give up their cloak and they give it to this person. And, he, and God would say, you have to give it back at the end of the day, even if the job hasn't been completed, because that's their only means of keeping warm. And so if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, in other words, if you don't give it back to him, and he cries to me, I will hear. Here's the logic. For I am compassionate. Here's this person crying out to God in their desperation, and God says, I'm going to hear them because I'm a compassionate God. Look forward at verse 8 in Psalm 6. Depart from me, you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. He's heard the sound of my weeping. And this is parallel. The sound of my weeping is parallel in verse 9 to Yahweh accepts my prayer. He accepts my prayer. What is it that God heard? His weeping. He heard and he answered. Spurgeon has an incredible statement here about this. He says, Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers and of weeping as a constant dropping of importunate intercession which will wear its way right surely into the very heart of mercy despite the stony difficulties which obstruct the way. Liquid prayer. (laughs) Spurgeon, that's so good. Sometimes you can't even express your thoughts but God hears the weeping of the saint and they become liquid prayers. Bring your pains and sorrows to God. That's what David does. Pour out your hearts to him, O people. Spurgeon said in another place, as God sees the water in the spring in the veins of the earth before it bubble upon the face of the earth, so God sees tears in the heart of man before they blubber his face. God hears the tears of that sorrowful soul which for sorrow cannot shed tears. I mean, God even knows when you are so sad you can't cry. He knows. He hears those tears too. Do you argue with God in prayer? Not, not, not in the way you may be thinking, but the way David is arguing. He's using logic to say, God, answer because of this, because of that, because of this, because of that. Do you make your case for God to hear you? David is doing that, even in his sorrow, giving reasons. And we can add another reason to David's. We have a sympathetic high priest. We have one who knows what it is to suffer as a human. For he took on flesh. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, the author says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so we have another reason even to come to our sympathetic high priest. So these are the reasons David gives. This is the deliberate reasoning of David in prayer. Finally, we see the dramatic reversal, the dramatic reversal in verses six, sorry, verses eight to 10. 
This confidence undergirds his prayer. Verse 8 says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This final section is a dramatic shift. I mean, it's David is, he's so disturbed. He's weeping. He's crying. And then all of a sudden, incredible confidence. <laughs> Some scholars who, who really don't believe uh, the Bible as the word of God, they kind of come to this. And some of them go, this must have been from a different place. Like some editor must have just like, you know, glued this to this psalm because it just, it's, how does this fit? Well, there's a more logical reason. God heard his prayer and he was encouraged and had confidence. This confidence floods his heart as he is confident he has God's favor and, and evidenced by the fact that God is heard. He, he has a confidence God is heard. David can face his enemies now that he's assured of God's favor. David can face God now because he's assured of his favor. Confidence of answered prayer. Once again, he has, a th- he has a threefold repetition of the name Yahweh, the Lord, and also a threefold affirmation of answered prayer. Three different ways he says, God, you, you've heard my prayer and you've answered. And so the result then is assurance in present distress in verses 8 and 9 and assurance of future deliverance in verse 10. This is a helpful application here that people who are not freed from their guilt of past sin often struggle in their fear of other people. The boldest Christians are the most free Christians when it comes to sin. They know where their sin has been dealt with. They know they have God's favor. They know that they are forgiven of their sins. If there's a haunting, you know, skeleton in your closet that has not been dealt with and and God has not forgiven you of that sin, there can be great, that can evidence itself in great fear as you interact with others. But if there's just this great freedom because God knows it all, God's forgiven it all, God's cleansed you, you have great freedom to walk boldly before others in the world. And so now David has great confidence such that he says, depart from me, you evildoers, those who are opposing God. Now, God had used David's enemies to bring discipline in his life, but then God is going to discipline those enemies because in the way in which they did it, it was sinful. And this is common. Isaiah 10 shows that God loves to use, you know, a crooked stick to draw a straight line, and then he goes and punishes the, the instrument of his discipline. And that's what David is saying here. Depart from me. And he's confident that these enemies in verse 10 will be ashamed and greatly troubled. But he is greatly confident now before others and before God because he, he knows he has God's favor. We might say it like this, that David is the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, in covenant with the Lord, can say to his enemies, depart from me, you workers of evil, because God has demonstrated that he is on David's side. Jesus would quote these same words in Matthew seven twenty three and Luke thirteen twenty seven: Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Another Davidic king, another anointed one. And he would quote this to his enemies who would reject him. Those who have rejected Jesus have rejected God's anointed one. And God has chosen this one. And therefore, they are facing God's judgment. They shall be ashamed and greatly troubled is the idea. So, so Jesus uses this in a contextual way. As David, as the anointed king of Israel, says to his enemies, I, God is on my side and he's going to punish you because you're opposed to me. So 
the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic promise can say to his enemies, those who are rejecting him, depart from me, you evildoers, as he looks forward to that final day because they've rejected the anointed of Psalm 2, the Lord Jesus himself. You know, oftentimes I think just, I've just observed this and I read something that kind of reminded me of it and confirmed it this week, but that oftentimes people take comfort in David and maybe in other characters too, in David because he, of his great sin, and we are great sinners. And they say, oh, you know, I just, I love David because they, they look at his sin, his big fallout, and they go, I can relate to this guy. <laughs> I'm a sinner too. But we have to be careful that we don't just uh, take comfort that David was a sinner if we won't join David in confessing our sin and taking refuge in Christ. It is no help to us to say, oh, David was a great sinner too, and, and so I'm good. No, you have to say, David was a great sinner, and David confessed his sin and took refuge in the Messiah. So we must as well. Yes, it, it may encourage you that God forgives sinners, but you have to do what David did and come before the Lord and confess your sin as well, and he will forgive. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. How sweet. What a description. Gentle and lowly. This is what the sufferer needs to hear. His Savior is gentle and lowly. And in the next chapter, Matthew twelve twenty, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What a comfort to the beaten down soul when you feel like just this little reed, it's like a little stick, it's just like splintered, just any pressure on it and it's going to snap, it's going to crack. And here the Lord Jesus is one who, he won't break that. He'll so gently care for it, watch over it. Or, or just that, that candle that you have at your home and it's like almost done. It's like flickering. It's just about out of wax and it's, you need to get another one. And so we would just go, oh, just throw it away and get a new one. Jesus holds that. He doesn't snuff it out. He doesn't quench it. He, he nurtures it. And sometimes that's how believers feel. They feel like they're, they're just, they have no wax left. They're, they're, their candle's about to go out. <laughs> they're about to break like a bruised reed. And here he comes, the perfect one to minister to us, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and to handle us in just the right way. Psalm 6 is a great encouragement to us as we see David's struggle, his agony, and yet he makes a great argument before the Lord, and then he comes away with assurance. And one more time with Spurgeon as we began with him. He said this, Depression of spirit is not an indication of declining grace. The very loss of joy and the absence of assurance may be accompanied by the greatest advancement in the spiritual life. We do not want rain all the days of the week and all weeks of the year. But if the rain comes, sometimes it makes the fields fertile and fills the water brooks. Sorrows deepen our intimacy with God is the idea that Spurgeon is getting at. I hope you'll find great encouragement in a psalm like Psalm 6 and a great balm for the heart. And now maybe you're not in that situation and you should praise God for that. And also let this be an instruction manual for you on approaching those who may be in this situation at seasons in their life 
to be gentle like our Lord and to uh, sometimes just listen and pray much for that person before you say much to that person and also ask the Lord for wisdom on how to approach them and to not exacerbate their downcast spirit uh, further, but rather to know just the right word to speak and the, the right to be just present with them at times and encourage them, yes, out of that discouragement, but in a way that would be gracious and gentle. We're thankful for saints who have walked through those waters and are especially gifted in that way. This is why we need the body of Christ to come alongside one another and uh, bear one another's burdens, weep with those who weep, as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice. May the Lord continue to help us in this way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. And uh, Lord, may it be that there, there wouldn't be any here who, who can relate to this in a very intimate way right now, but there certainly may be those, even in a room this size, that you would minister great hope and comfort to them in, in things that were spoken here and this David's experience, Spurgeon's experience and Pilgrim's Progress and the illustration there that you love to help those who are downcast. We live in a fallen world. There's a sanity to our sadness because things are not what they ought to be and yet what hope you give us to draw us out of discouragement and to place our feet on the rock to bring us through seasons of discouragement back into seasons of joy. Even that prospect, Lord, that you do that is an encouragement to those who don't see a way out yet, saying how long, and yet, Lord, here's the confidence that we have in answered prayer. When we come to you, you hear us. You even hear when we can't express what we want to say, but only have tears, and you hear us nevertheless, and you'll answer because you're compassionate, you're merciful, you're loving, and you love your glory, Lord. May a praise be on our lips as even one of the remedies to draw us out, Lord. So we sing now to you out of full hearts, thankful hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.